Radio Show, your home for car talk covering the latest news to the greatest views on the biggest names in performance, sports, and just plain cool driving machines. Let's rev up the conversation. Time for Driven Radio Show. Hey, all you gearheads and car fiends, welcome to Driven Radio Show, your weekly automotive happy hour. I am Brett Hatfield, here with my co-host and engineer extraordinaire, Mr. Mark Groves. That's me. We are coming to you from Driven Radio Studios, where it's finally cooled off and lava is no longer flowing down the street. We had the windows open last night. Holy it was mother crazy. of pearl. It was so very nice. Yeah, daddy-like. Uh, yeah, Rhonda and I threw uh, Blind Melon Chitlin, the uh, five-pound... <laughs> The five pound terror that is our blind chihuahua. Blind Millie Chihuahua. Yeah. <laughs> Threw her in the, uh, in the 65 Corvette, put the top oh. down, went to the dog park, and she, she wanders or wanders and wonders. And just, we let her off the leash and she just kind of plods along and sniffs, sniffs everything. And it's new, uh, it's new stimulation for her. Yeah. And it is sweet to watch, but she is. Just blind as a bat. And I don't think she hears a whole lot anymore because you wish a la- whistle at her just keeps walking like, ah, screw you. I don't want to talk to you. Oh, she's a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> 15-year-old little five-pound chewy. But she is still the perfect size. You can scoop her up like a lunchbox and take her anywhere. Aww. So uh, just so nice to finally get a break in the heat. Amen. And it's going to be pretty pleasant this week. And it looks like next week's not going to be bad. So maybe we're out from under it. I say that. Fingers and then September will be scorching. Don't jinx it. Yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Our special guest this week is Kat DeLorean, daughter of legendary auto magnate John Z. DeLorean. Kat is a proud mother, a wife, automotive enthusiast, and the leader of the DeLorean Next Generation. Kat is a champion of science, technology, engineering, arts, Automotive, Mathematics, and Manufacturing, or STEAM, spelled S-T-E-A-A-M-M, Education, and a frequent speaker at DerbyCon, the Grace Hopper Conference, and Girls Who Code. She is uh, much more computer adept than either of us. She's interested in returning excellence to design, engineering, and manufacturing, and restoring her father's legacy. Kat, welcome to Driven Radio. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy we finally landed you. This is just <laughs> terrific. You know, I was I was going through all of the material and all of the stuff and information that's available about your dad last night. And, oh, my Lord, I, 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 the further I dug, the more I found. And I started thinking, I got to I got to quit doing this. I'm never going to get to bed. But. As I was researching everything on your dad, I found videos on YouTube from the DeLorean Legacy Project, and your husband is interviewing you, and he's asking your asking you questions about your dad, and then he asked you about the favorite memories of your father, and suddenly it was no longer about your dad or his automotive legacy or anything else. You were talking about the guy who was your dad, uh, you know, the... And you were talking about playing gin with him and watching movies and eating popcorn. And you were a little emotional, but it was so heartfelt and so genuine. And it made me realize, you know, we're always interested in all the car nerd stuff. We're interested in all the car stuff. But you were talking about your father. It's not John Z. DeLorean the way we all see him. You see him as daddy. And it was just... It was so heart touching. 
and I I wanted to tell you that suddenly I'm think I'm looking at him differently with a far more human bent. And can you can you tell us a little bit about growing up with that man as your father? Um, it was a journey. Uh, my dad, in my eyes, is one of the greatest minds of our lifetimes, and it was magical to be able to grow up with that. So I was able to experience all of the glories of what made him great and what he's revered for. So in my eyes, John DeLorean was an inventor and a thinker and a problem solver and somebody who was constantly looking at the world to see how he could make it a better place. But I always consciously separated John DeLorean from my dad. Um, because there was a larger than life persona that was attached to John DeLorean. And so I consciously thought to myself, okay, there's a businessman, a person that exists outside of this human that I know. The contrast of the public persona of my dad and my daddy were so stark beyond what you would equate to a public perception of the same person, the only way that it was possible that he was the same human was that they were different people. And that allowed me to view my dad very specifically, consciously and um, mindfully as my father and to look for those qualities and enjoy them in him. And I was able to embrace what made him uniquely John DeLorean in a way that allowed me to separate that from him. So growing up with my dad, Um, I lived with Christina and I would have phone calls with my father. Well, I was limited to two 10 minute phone calls a night because I can talk forever. You'll find that out. And um, that included my phone calls to my father. So to get around that, we would do math homework and I would continue to do it so that by the time I was done with the fourth grade, we had finished a ninth grade geometry book because (laughs) we just kept going (laughs) and it was a way to just connect with him. And I spent years sitting on a couch working. He had an engine that he worked on from Packard all the way until he died. And there were problems that he was trying to solve with it that we sat and we worked on together. And when I thought about the answer to this question about what it was like to grow up with him, looking at engineering documents remind me of happy memories of my dad. That's what it's like to grow up with John DeLorean. But more than that, He was my father and growing up and raising children and being able to really look back with pure hindsight to understand the gift that was given to me in having him there. He was an interested father. He was an involved father and he was a present father for all of my life. And because of that, in the movie Framing John DeLorean, there's a gentleman who did Jay Alex. He has a very large financial firm now. He did the financial investigation. I called him and I said, thank you. (laughs) Because of all of that, I had my daddy next to me and sitting with me and present with me. Um, There's more to it that I didn't understand at the time I made that phone call. But the man I got to know is the man every child wants to be their dad. He was there to do my homework. He taught me how to fish. He taught me how to ride motorcycles. He took me on ridiculous journeys. He was working on writing a children's book with me. I was able to have a dad that cared and loved me and was a 
wonderful father. And on top of that, I was also able to grow up under one of the greatest minds that turned learning into the greatest. I'll end it this way. When the iPhone first came out, Jason said, I was addicted to phones for a totally different reason than everybody else. I had the answer to all the world's questions in my pocket. So everything I thought of, I didn't have to go look up at the library. I was able to just pull it out <laughs> and look it up on my phone. And that comes from my dad, because that's what it was like to grow up under him. <laughs> nice. Your father for most car guys is best known for his car company, but he was also, like you said, a gifted engineer and an executive with an incredible career at GM that included creating the GTO, the Firebird, the Grand Prix. Uh, by the way, thank your dad. I've had four Grand Prix uh, <laughs> and the Chevrolet Cosworth Vega. Uh, do you recall life before your father's car company and did he bring any of his GM cars home? Uh, what were some of your favorite innovations from his career? So I was conceived at the same time as the DMC 12 in 1977. So I have no recollection of General Motors from my lifetime, but I am, a, I call myself a Pontiac princess. That's a little bit, um, very, um, braggadocious for me for a name, but that shows my pride and where my father's history lies. Um, people would come up to me and talk to me about the DeLorean and I'd say, okay, but he invented the American muscle car. Yeah, he did. There's that. And, and to me, his, my favorite to answer this question, my favorite of his, um, automotive inventions is Babs. That's my 1998 WS6 Trans Am. Ooh, <laughs> um, nice. All individually right. on this planet, she is my favorite of all of his creations. And, um, but, and I'm original owner. That was a car. There's a fun story about me getting that car. I had to call my daddy. I had to ask for a favor because they only made 2,700 that year and I couldn't find it. So I had to call my dad who had to call in a favor from a Pontiac dealer just to get me the car. <laughs> So that car is my pride and joy, my 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 baby. And um, aside from that, though, it is it, it's the GTO, but it's not. It, it's the GTO. It's the overhead cam. It's the modern automatic transmission. It's recessed windshield wipers. It's ask me on a different day, and it will be a different thing based on my feeling. Asking me to choose my dad's favorite invention is like asking me to choose my favorite memory with my dad. Each one is unique, special, and different. And my favorite for its own reason, um, I can tell you this one thing. It's not the DeLorean. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I understand from watching some of the interviews that you were in that he used to have a pile of Corvettes sitting in the driveway. I was told that he had seven Corvettes, one for each day of the week. And <laughs> I was very bad at him growing up because I said, you mean I could have had a different Corvette every day of the week and you left General Motors? Why? <laughs> What's amazing to me, though, is that um, so the Corvette is my favorite car. Um, my, I had one dream in life, and that was to one day grow up and own a Z06. Um, oh, nice. it, it, is, it is the achievable American dream. For I mean, it's the thing you can dream and achieve. And, and for me, that was my moment. 
Um, when the when the C5 Corvette came out, I dragged him to the auto show. He had to take me there. I still have the poster from going to the New York auto show. Um, I'm still in touch with somebody who I met there who's now part of the DeLorean community, which is crazy. He was a, D- a BMW dealer. So there's great memories around this. But throughout my whole life, he never told me that he had a part in the Corvette's development. I knew he worked for Chevrolet, but he never said to me, oh, you know, I did this or, you know, I did that or I had some part in this. He in everything he ever did, this journey that I've had this past year is learning about the the part where he changed the world. He left out the part where he changed the world yes. or had some impact on something that was hugely important to me so that when I got older, I was able to do all this research. I Googled DeLorean and powertrain, these two words together. And all of a sudden I learned my father had a project at General Motors that led to what became the DMC-12. <laughs> He commissioned a study on an aerospace aluminum Corvette called the Reynolds Aluminum Corvette, which yeah. was based on the Aeros- Aerovet platform, which the Aerovet is a gullwing Corvette yes. that exists that I didn't know existed. Now, if you look at the prototype interior of the Aerovet and the Reynolds Corvette, it'll look very similar to Proto 1. Yeah. My father actually tried to purchase this vehicle from General Motors and the research that went into the the Reynolds aluminum Corvette for the DMC and they wouldn't sell it to him. So my father actually wanted to build the original DeLorean off of the mid-engine Corvette platform, which I think is incredible. (laughs) Now, when you say Reynolds, are you, do you mean like Reynolds wrap? Reynolds Reynolds aluminum, it comes from somewhere. Yes, yeah. Oh my God. It's at the time, aerospace aluminum was way too expensive to use in automobiles. And it's standard in everything today, which is how far ahead of its time he was. Economies of scale have caught up. And that is one sexy car. I'm looking at it right now. I'm like, wow, that's gorgeous. I was going to have to drag you into the office and show you the 15 books I've got that car in. (laughs) (laughs) I have have a few right here. I have have quite a few. But it was kind of, it's like he left this journey for me to go on and these things for me to discover about him. Like, why wouldn't you tell me that stuff? (laughs) I've talked about the Corvette nonstop my whole life. Why wouldn't you tell me about this incredible story you have of, that it is involved in its history? And that just wasn't that. See, that's that's how it doesn't match. That wasn't who he was. He didn't brag about anything he did. And then every story you hear is he's a narcissist. Um, well, um, he never told me about the stuff he did. So like, <laughs> he was never bragging. I don't I can't reconcile that. Um, but he's. You know, he's my dad, and and he made it an aluminum Corvette, and that's <laughs> that's pretty cool. <laughs> you mentioned like my dad made an aluminum Corvette. They, that's that's not something most people could ever say. Maybe they made it in their garage, but no, he made it at GM. That's yeah. <laughs> right. You said that you uh, you took your dad to the reveal of the C five because you because you were excited about it, but did you go with him on any of his trips or to any of the conventions when he was building his car company? No, because I was still well. Okay, so I can't say that. Maybe, but because there's photographs of me there. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was very small, so I don't actually remember. My brother has has memories, so he's six years older than me. 
And he has much more vivid memories of that time because I was two or three, right? Um, and so he can tell you the cool stuff that happened when during the time of the DMC-12. But later in life, my father, he never stopped trying to build a car company. And so forever after, I have memories of that. We went together to car shows. I helped try and raise money for the D2 program in, when we first started in the 2000. Um, we worked together. There's a suspension. He had a suspension he designed. And um, I don't know the truth of what happened here, but this is the order of operations. We used to read Road and Track and Auto Week every, whenever they came in, we'd talk about them in Car and Driver. One day he was working on a suspension. Dad, what are you working on? Oh, it's this suspension that'll help cars corner 20% faster because it was able to figure out how to keep the center of gravity on all four wheels to a greater degree. And he's developing this. Two years later, Auto Week comes in and it's about either the Porsche Boxster or the Mercedes CL, the one, the spider cars that came out at that time. One came first, the other came second. And they're talking about this revolutionary new suspension. And they described it exactly the way that he was talking about it. And I went to him and I said, what is this? And he looked me in the face and he said, when you're a small fish in the ocean, that's what happens. Oh, and oh so no. he had taken his design to try and sell it to, you know, somebody. I don't know if that's what happened because I absolutely love Porsche and Mercedes and I'm not about to bad mouth any of that. But that was the that was the what I remember having happened. So while I wasn't there when DMC happened and for all of this, I was there for the entirety of the rest of his life where he never, ever, ever gave up on his dream and nice. continued to work for it forever. Do you now or have you ever resented the car that has your father's name on it and the time that it well, you probably weren't aware of the time that it, it took you it took him away from you when you were a child because you were so young. But uh, if, have you ever had any resentment toward the car? Yes. Um, and, and I again, I love that you asked this question because I get this question a lot. But yesterday, literally just yesterday, I had a moment where I actually realized how my father felt about the car. And it hit me like a ton of bricks all of a sudden. Right here, right here. I was looking at the painting and it just hit me and it, it floored me. And this is what I mean. <clears throat> so for a long time, people would ask me um, my feelings on the car. And I have a very simple, elegant answer for that. That was in the documentary. If there was an iconic representation of your entire life falling apart, would you park it in your driveway? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I didn't think so. I didn't. <laughs> so like, why would I want that car? Now, as I've gone through this journey and building what we're doing and 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 talking to people and reading his PR box that his PR agent sent me that she saved for 20, it was amazing. All of these things that were said that he was doing and, and how he was trying to do it. My father wasn't trying to build a car. This is what happened. I'm trying to build an education program in a building. Somebody comes to me and says, I have a cool car. Then we say, okay, let's build one car. All of a sudden, I have a car company. Why? When you're a DeLorean and you try and build a car, literally, that's what happens. So order of operations. My father becomes a consultant. Allstate comes to him and says, build us a safety vehicle. He goes to Bricklin. He uses Bricklin's prototype. 
if you look at the original DeLorean safety vehicle, it is identical to a Bricklin. Yeah. And then he goes to make a foam car, a foam car for Allstate. He is in the middle of working on a composite production car, and somehow that turned into the DMC-12, meaning he never wanted to build a car. It wasn't about the car. The car showed up, and the car became a means to an end. When these factory workers, they came to me, they said, you know, Kat, it wasn't about the car. It was about building it a different way. The things that he put in place in the factories in Ireland are standard in factories today. Things like no worker shall work for a long period of time with their arms above their head. Nobody will have to do the same job over and over. You're able to rotate through the different jobs on the line. He created a different way of building the car, which is why he didn't mind training new people to do it because nobody knew how to do it the way he was going to do it anyway. And in all of the articles that I read afterwards, in his words, he got focused on his name on that car. He set out to change the world, to build his factories by his partner's own words, where they would have the greatest social impact. And he built it in war-torn Ireland yeah, and brought great. together the Protestants and the Catholics. And he saw success in changing the world, but he was too egotistical to let go of his name on a car. Oh, yeah, yeah. So when he looks at the car, he sees his hubris that he had that prevented him from reaching what he was trying to do. And in representation of engineering failure, nothing that he wanted was on that car. Everything was compromised to achieve the goal, which was the factory. It was all parts put together because all he needed to do was build a car. And then he got so caught up on failing with his name on the car. And you know how I know this? Before you ask the question, I accidentally ended up with a car company and I somehow ended up with this Detroit auto show date facing me and I somehow ended up with a deadline I didn't need and we were building a prototype that was going to be ready. And all of a sudden, everything was going in a way that I stood up and I said, why are we doing this? I don't want to own a car company. You're going to make me miserable running this horrible thing for the rest of my life. What is happening? <laughs> Please stop. And then we stopped and said, it's about what we're trying to achieve, which is our education program. And we stopped building the car and then the car came. So the minute that I let go of my name, I saw it. I was like, this is, I said to my husband, the words came out of my mouth. My name is on that. Everybody's going to watch me fail the way my father did. You ruined my life. And I got caught up in that life ruining moment. And then I went, wait a minute, we didn't because it's not about a car. I don't have to build a car. I can walk away from the car any minute of any day. I have to build this other thing I'm doing. And I understood profoundly what my father faced. Tunnel vision. We all get it. We all get it in anything. You can have any project you have at work where you're so focused on the end result, you lose what you started making that end result for in the first place. So the car, and my relationship with it has changed drastically. And my understanding of its meaning and its place in this world has changed drastically. But just yesterday, I understood what the car represented for my dad and why in the 30 years after the company failed, he never once even thought of owning one and parking. Wow. That's, that's so profound. That seems huge. It was, it floored me. It literally hit me. 
like an actual ton of bricks. I was standing here looking at the painting that I have, which is my prized possession. And I just, I, I started to cry. I said, my God, and my husband, it hit my husband too. Because when you, we are, we are, we have built something amazing, just life changing for the people who will be able to take part in it. And it feels amazing. And if we had lost that because we got caught up in trying to build something that didn't matter, it would, it would live, I would live with, and if you were able to fix Ireland, well, uh, when Brexit happened, they interviewed a Northern Irish gentleman and he said words that, that said everything to me. He said, I'm really worried the factories will leave because there's what, they're what made the troubles go away. Oh, wow. Oof. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so he had it right. And it all fell apart because he was so worried about his name on that car that he just got caught up in it. So the man I knew was very different than the man that built that car. And he taught me how to learn from his hard lessons. And I've been able to look back on the life I've lived and I've made the exact opposite decision in every right way. <laughs> well played. And, including stopping the building of the prototype when I did. I walked into the office. We still were focusing on the car and I walked into the office and said to my husband, I don't know why, but I need you to stop building the car right now. Oh, I need wow. you to stop. And, and I said, I don't know. I know we don't have time to make it by our deadline. I know that there is nothing that will make it seem like we'll be able to make this work. But trust me, I just know it will. And I have to tell you, we have to stop building the car right now. And the minute we did that, the minute we made that decision, the minute I made the right decision, everything fell into place. All of the things we were fighting for started to fall into place. It all just made sense because it was about focusing on what we were doing. And when we were trying to focus on the wrong thing, we ended up losing focus, ah. right? <laughs> oh, you've got great focus. You just lost sight. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Exactly. We lost sight of what we were doing. And it, and it really, really, really was so profound for me to be able, I'm living my father's life. I am living it differently, but I'm, I'm able to examine each of the decisions he faced and why he made the ones that he did. And, and part of that is because he sat next to me my whole life and told me all of the ways in which it can be done right and so, all of the mistakes he made, but he left out the part where he changed the world. So was that DNG Motors? Is that, uh, is that on hold now? No. No, it's actually what it is. So so here you go. Uh, DeLorean Next Generation is not an automotive company. It is a dream empowerment company fueled by automobiles. Oh. <laughs> the idea behind DNG Motors is um, students today, children, there's 33% of them have zero hope for their future. None. Zero. I have no hope for a future. That's stopped. And think about, let me repeat that. 33% of our children today have zero hope for their future. And part of that is they don't see a path to 
a career that means something to them or even a career that lets them live and not just work all the time. They see it in social media, in the power of becoming an influencer, but that's the only way where they feel in control of their future. And then something that they can then retire on. I don't dream of labor means I want a life. I don't want to work every minute of every day. And my father, when he worked at General Motors, he implemented all of these programs that were designed to help people who everybody else had written off or didn't have the same chance. Um, Operation Opportunity was insane and revolutionary. He assigned people to take people who were, um, say, felons, right? And you can't get a job and you're a drug addict and you can't do anything. And you are assigned a buddy who wakes you up every single day and gets you to job gets you to work. And he said, after they got their first paycheck, everything changed. You just had to assign them somebody to get them to work for their first two weeks. Yeah. And he put all of this effort into equality programs and into diversity and inclusion programs and making the playing field level for everyone, offering opportunity where it didn't exist. And we're in a time right now where nobody knows what the future holds. You can't forecast 18 months out in business. You can't retire on anything. Nothing makes sense. Nothing we're told. The rules don't matter anymore. So how do you have hope? Well, you have a car. You have a car I didn't want to build, but they want to build for me. People want to buy it. Cool. What (laughs) if I took this car and I sold it to the people who want to buy it and I take the money that the car makes and I put it into an education program that allows students to see their future in building automotive anything. So anything you want to do exists in the automotive space. You want to become, you want to go into art, you can design a car. You want to go into marketing, they have that too. You want to go into legal, guess what? They need lawyers. Anything, anything you want to do, people need to see it in the automotive industry. Why? Because it's where the American dream still is alive and well. People in the automotive industry can still retire. They still have pensions. They still have a career and a life and something you can do. And it's the lifeblood of what built this country. American manufacturing and the automotive industry is what built this country. And 50% of kids never want a license, let alone a car. Hello? I know, right? Yeah. The automotive industry has now lost half of its customer base, period, end of conversation. And I'm not okay with that when there's an opportunity to bring jobs, education, training, and hope. And Uh, that's what it's about. Because if you're going to build our car, we're going to give you access to a support system that comes through our business partners that are going to give you um, efficiency and low-cost loans to help bring your manufacturing plant to something that is viable and competitive and allows our OEMs to actually buy parts without with having a just-in-time manufacturing arm available in the next five years. That's our goal, so that you can actually have something to solve these problems and be green and not have to take the hit yourself. And then also invest in in expanding access to these, maybe virtual reality manufacturing, so that we can bring jobs to rural areas where people don't have traditional access to things or support for students to move out of those areas through programs like Tech Force that have scholarships that can help you out to move and relocate 
and then offer support for them when they get there. We want to build an entire structure that allows people to have a future and 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 spreads that wealth essentially by by using a need to train people, a car people want, and an agreement that you're going to be part of this to build the car, to train our kids, to help us all get to a better future. So it's not a car company. It's a dream empowerment company fueled by automobiles. I want to go grab my college-age daughter and make her go drive. Oh, no. I right want to enroll, dude. <laughs> right now. And, that, and that's what it's about. It's about, and, and, and eventually we hope to be able to, as we tell more people about this program, we have people coming to me, what about music? Yes. Please, when we're done with this section, I want to build that. Because what we're doing is not building it ourselves. We're bringing together excellence in partnership. Every single component of what we're doing is done through people who've done it way better than me for a lot longer. And they have a true demonstrated demonstrated desire to focus on the students first and a track record of actually putting their money where their mouth is. So we don't have to worry about doing too much. We just have to worry about finding the right partners that actually have the same goals as us. And we found that it aligns very well when you look for people who want to change the world with you and you get to tell them, well, I have a cool car to help us do it. Everybody kind of wants to get on board. Well, that's not something you often hear. Uh, when people talk about changing the world, it's usually uh, bluntly put, I, I work with a number of wonderful young people uh, at my current job, but a lot of, uh, a lot of the, the way that changing the world is through protest and through this and through that, making somebody else change it. Whereas I, I love the idea of being able to look forward to a future, to making an impact in it and doing it through automobiles. I am so digging on that. That's the kind of thing where I'm like, I'm kind of excited about what the designs will come out. Instead of looking like a melted scoop of ice cream, maybe this is the type of thing where we'll, it'll be like, oh my God, that is that is so unique. Kind of like, you know, what your dad did. Yeah, if you're completely not completely different looking vehicles. If you're not enthused right now, you need to check your pulse. <laughs> yeah. I know. Well, I haven't even told you about the program because I intend to have students actually manufacture a car by the time they graduate. Oh my god. Oh, oh cool. Well, <laughs> and which is, we're which gonna is, we're gonna have a look at that car and have you back on to tell us about how great it is. We want to test drive. We want to do a live test drive of it. Oh, absolutely. Now um, this is the part of the show where Mark and I are going to completely nerd out on you. Uh, so, so brace yourself. What did your dad think about his car being used in Back to the Future? And what are your thoughts on the movie and the community? There, the, there is a community that surrounds the series of movies. And what, what were your thoughts on that? So, first of all, to the community, love. Okay, so this is really important. Um, the people who are in the Back to the Future community and in the DeLorean community and in the GTO community and in the John DeLorean community, you all are why I'm here. Um, and it's also why I'm able to be here. So my father did all of these wonderful and great things. And like I said, it was painful and hard. And without the people who've brought the joy to the experience to me and 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 shared with me just the way that the car has given them something that defined their dreams in life, 
without that, I could have never been able to embrace who my dad was fully. So to the community, I love everybody. And I could never say thank you enough. As far as the car being in the movie, again, this is an answer that I, I think is different after yesterday. And I think looking back on it, it allowed him to have the car be something else. It allowed the car to grow into what it did. And it allowed him to show up in Cleveland in 2000 and see hundreds of people there in love with his car and redefine what this now meant him his relationship with it changed after that after seeing the people who who loved him and that was what i wanted the whole thing started with a gto show where it's a fun story um i'll post it somewhere because when i tell it my words it's all about me showing up to a little tiny geo gto show in the wrong dress where everybody's staring at me who's this new person and then they tell who i am and they sucked all the air out of the room and i'm standing there naked <laughs> <laughs> but but the mo and then I said the wrong thing like I said all the wrong things and so I but I left there dragging my dad back saying you have to see what you mean to people yeah. you just don't and when I was able to get him in front of everybody and he could see it it changed things for him so without the movie he wouldn't have been able to redefine the car himself either and i think it allowed it to become something other than what it was which he was appreciative of but i also think like me it's complicated i don't like that the car was in the movie because then it took away back to the future i don't like the movie because i can't i've had it shoved in my face every minute <laughs> of every day for 40 years it's a lot. It's a lot. Thank you. I'm glad you saw a time machine. You know what? It's not rare to me. I have no idea how rare this car is because I see it 19 times a day. I get emails. Now, I love it when it comes from fans because they always are very like my dad left me the superpower of joy. The coolest thing in the world is I can make somebody's entire day with five seconds of a hello and a DM. That's insane. That's amazing. I've cried over the reaction people have had over something that cost me no effort no time so please anybody who has a car please send them to me i'm talking about people i know people i know <laughs> should know better you should not think that i'm gonna care that you saw DeLorean driving down the street so everybody who knows me personally very well stop <laughs> it's good it's good no, but in the same respect, they geek out too, right? They're like, I know you. They feel special. I don't want to rob them of that. But but if you can imagine what that's like, if you don't, you're not able to enjoy the movie for what it is because it's so complicated. So my feelings on it being in the movie are it sucks because Back to the Future is awesome. And I hate it. I don't hate it. I love the movie. I love the community, the story, everything about it, but the movie. <laughs> it's a little um, hard to watch now i will i will give you that uh the <laughs> 80s we were so we were so sweet back then and so <laughs> so naive and we didn't know anything <laughs> no we didn't <laughs> but it's, it's such an icon like it would have been one of my favorite movies of all time so it kind of robbed me of that but for us for all the rest of it everything else that goes around it except for the movie itself is 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 amazing the experience, the fact 
that people see this car in the movie. Every single story starts with, I saw the car when I was eight in the movie. And then there, one guy became a finance manager because he saved up for his birthday to buy the car. Literally lives are defined by this car. And that's incredible. So thank you. Thank you back to the future for turning it into a dream. That mm. is amazing. But also you suck because you're <laughs> There's the belly cut. <laughs> Thank you so much and screw you. <laughs> no, but I, you know, and I've gotten to know Kevin Pike and Bob Gale and everybody over the years too. And Claudia Wells is one of my favorite people on the planet. And I would have never had any of these experiences if not for the movie in the car. So yeah. I'm very, very grateful for it as well. It's, it is what it is, <laughs> right? I can't change it. So we're going to go back a little bit. Um, how old? This was part of one of the interviews that I caught last night. And I'm like, God, that's worse than me. And I didn't think anybody was, uh -oh. was worse than this. How old were you when you learned to drive? Yeah, I was like two. I was. It was two. I was, so I was like, I was, I, I apparently was still in diapers because the photograph I have is me driving a Morgan in diapers. <laughs> so I was very small. What I do remember is this. Um, I I distinctly remember being two years old and my father put me on a 50 on the on the lawn of Fedminster. He sat me down on the bike and he said, learn how to fall off and I'll teach you how to ride. And 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 no kidding. I fell off a bike that wasn't moving onto the onto the spike um, kickstand and I cut right through my leg oh. on a parked motorcycle. Yep. Two years and like really hurt myself. Now, fast forward to 14-year-old cat riding her Kawasaki around the back fields, and I'm launching off a bike, and I step on the foot peg and launch off so my leg doesn't get caught because I never forgot what happens mm. when you don't get your leg out of the way when you fall on a motorcycle. So <clears throat> after that, he taught me how to drive on the farm. We we had a large place where I had off-road and on-road. He, sure, <clears throat> he made sure that I hit ice, so turning into the into the steer became natural. He made sure that I had an Honda Odyssey, which is a dune buggy, not the minivan. And <laughs> and I would drive it around the um the farm so that I learned how to react in real time quickly. The original right? yellow Odyssey with the half cage on it or the yeah. or the Mine red with red. the full. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So and it was, you know, and you it was because it had the steering wheel and he wanted me to learn how to have my reaction time be less chaotic. When you're able to um to learn how to respond in a in a crisis situation without the crisis, when the crisis happens, you're able to be able to respond better, which is also part of what so one of the things we're actually doing, which will be part of what we're doing in Detroit, is I want to create an intramural high school simulated racing team so we can get expensive simulators into high schools and allow kids to learn driver's ed in a situation where they can experience a controlled accident. And yeah. it, they're, um, you know, so everything is about the safety that's built into me from my dad. But I want kids racing. And and I found a guy who was able to implement an actual core Camaro race car with high school kids. So if he can get them racing a real car, we can get them racing simulated cars. So <laughs> what was your first car? My first car was technically the Morgan, but this story. So there's a couple. 
there's technically the Morgan because I was two. It was a kit car, you know, whatever. But my father at 14, he traded a piece of farm equipment for a 1972 convertible Mercedes Benz in baby blue with red leather interior with an it was a V6 body with a V8 shoved in it. I had a GTO Mercedes Benz. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so big. It was so fast. It was beautiful. And he and he traded a bulldozer to a European prince to get me this car. (laughs) That's my very first car. Now, when I turned 16, he thought it'd be really funny. Now, I actually got to drive it to the quick check. I didn't get my license until way, like, I was 17. I didn't care. I didn't need it. I was driving. Who cares? Yeah. (laughs) Kids don't do this. I'm a bad example. But but at 16, he thought it'd be funny to put a killer stereo system in this 1972 GTO'd Benz. And so here I had this convertible classic Benz with a subwoofer in the trunk. Wow. Okay. But then it gets better because when I turned 17 and I got my license, Christina said, you have $20,000. You can buy a car. Sorry, privilege. Yes. But she said, you can buy a Honda an act and a cord, right? But also I could buy the dealer prep Z28 for that. It was more than $20,000 unless I got the used one. And she had no idea what she was buying at all. She wanted me to buy a reliable car. I bought that. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the car that my parents first bought for me. My first car, the car I spent my hard earned money on was my 1998 WS6. I saw the ad in the the magazine that said to a bug it's a 320 horsepower blender and i had to have this car now i had never seen one i had never driven one i needed to own it and i spent months calling up and down the eastern seaboard to try and find one and i couldn't and then i called my dad and i said daddy i need this car Uh daddy (laughs) Yes. And but so he called one of his old um, Pontiac dealers in Akron, Ohio, and I drove from New Jersey to Akron, Ohio, which is exactly 500 miles, which means the drive home was painful for my passenger because we were not breaking it in above 55 miles an hour on the entire drive home, 500 miles, pulled in the driveway. Dad comes out off the hood. He walks around the car like a proud papa mm-hmm. he sat in the car and looked at me and said, I named this car. Did you know that? And I didn't <laughs> know what that meant until I learned about the Banshee. Mm-hmm. They took the Banshee from him yeah. to turn it into a Corvette and gave him the Firebird rebadged Camaro as a consolation prize. So yeah. when he said, I named this car, that's literally all he did until, until he got a little bit back at them because anybody who's been part of the V8 shootout and knows the F bodies of the nineties knows that the Firebird Trans Am was always a little bit better than the yes. Camaro. <laughs> because he redid the suspension and the handling and he was like, fine. If you don't want competition for your Corvette, I'm going to compete against your Camaro. There have been a number of documentaries and also the movie about your dad. Uh, Did they get the story right? What do they leave out? What did they get wrong? What is it that people should know that they don't know? That it's all wrong. 
that history is written by those who survive and not even those who win. And if you go back and you look at what was written about my dad with Google time-based search and go prior to 2005, and then you look at everything written about him after 2005, you will get a very clear picture of how very wrong it is. Right down to framing John DeLorean, which I made the mistake of introducing Tamir to Christina and Christina turned the whole movie into poor Christina. Nothing about how he was painted in that picture was correct. I even spoke mm-hmm. to Bill Collins thinking how tragic, how my, what my dad did to Bill was terrible and I'm not gonna make excuses about how that all happened. I do understand what happened, but when I spoke to this man, he called my father his mentor. He said he didn't feel that way about my dad, the way that this movie made me feel like he felt. He said my father was very kind to him, that he allowed him to present his 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 projects that was never done before. And then he told me a story about a joke my father played on him about telling him that he could fix a problem with an engine by putting a banana in a tailpipe, which then made me understand <laughs> that that's where that story came from in Beverly Hills Cop, because my father knew a lot of people in Hollywood and definitely told the story about making Bill Collins put a banana in a tailpipe, which he did. And then my father said, did it work? And he said, no. And that's all we're going to say about that. And this was, you know, what people remembered of him. And when you watch these movies and these documentaries, the only thing I can say is I left the documentary with the woman who knew him best next to me. And that was his girlfriend for most of his life, Brenda Jordan. And she looked at me and she said, I don't know that man. And she wasn't wrong because the story was portrayed right down to I, I, I got in a disagreement with Tamir because there's a scene in there where he's fussing with his tie before he thinks he's going to go to jail for the rest of his life and he ignores his children. And I said, Tamir, that scene was so, that just wasn't my dad. That really just wasn't. And he said, oh, that story came from Christina. We added the children for artistic effect. I said, you you added children to have my my father ignore them when he thought he was going to go to prison for artistic, you made him look like a monster for artistic effect. And and this was somebody who spent his entire life from when he was six years old wanting to tell people the truth about my dad and his story. And that's the movie that came out because that's what Hollywood would let him produce. And every time I talk to him, I say, Tamir, why didn't you make the movie you were making? Why didn't you make the movie I agreed to be in? Why didn't you make the movie you were making? Because that's not what people want to hear. That's not the story that people want to believe. That I could sit here and I could tell you everything that's wrong with the story that's out there. But all it is is going to be words from my mouth that somebody's going to interpret the way that they feel and it's not going to fix or change anything. I'll tell you this. You can know what they have wrong by looking at who my brother and I are. We grew up with wealth so large. Trump National Bedminster was my childhood home. Somebody came to my birthday party and said, I thought it was rich till I came to your house. I had no idea what that meant. Because I never grew up that way. I had to, I got, I had video games and I could have more if I went and worked on the farm and earned it. I didn't get it. I was, he, I wore gas Naguchi. I was taught what, how, just, it was so different. It was so different. And people meet my brother and I, and they're surprised by how down to earth we are. And I wasn't, aware of how strange it was until I grew up and went, holy cow, he raised us to only want one thing. 
to help others and to live a quiet life preserving land. How do you grow up with that much wealth, opulence, power, and, and exposure and be a person who really just wants to change the world for others if he was anywhere, anywhere, even remotely like the man that any of those stories tell? So I can't give you an answer to that other than watch me and see what I do and you will be able to learn how it's all wrong and that's the only way that I can tell you the correct story. Of all the documentaries and the movie and the books and everything else, do, do any of them get close? Everybody, every, all of them have a modicum of truth. So, so my father had, so th there is truth in the fact that he threw people he cared about under the bus while being focused on the wrong thing. Um, there's a lot of truth into the things he did wrong in DMC and the regrets he had about them. Um, there is truth in the fact there is a really cool history channel, one that was done on the history of the automobile, which went into his contributions to the GTO. That one got a lot right. I think in any, in any story that has been told, will be told, was told, whatever, um, there's, there's truth to part of it. And then there is, um, it doesn't even have to be lies or myths, untruths. It's whatever the interpretation that person had of the story, which is different than the one that I know based on my life and my perspective. Um, I don't have the experience, knowledge, or um, I wasn't there. I don't even know what's true from what my father told me and what he didn't. So... All I know is that in his book, he talks about what mattered to him. In On a Clear Day, you can read into some of the things that mattered to him. Um, if you read it in a way that removes your any bias you're meant to have. The truth lies in your interpretation of him when you remove what other people tell you you should think like we've been discussing like you said there's a lot about your father and his company that has been skewed as it's been presented to the public there's a lot of stuff that's unknown there's lots of documents that haven't been released about how the company was run and what actually happened there and I'm wondering, are what are some of the things that you know of that happened that nobody knows about, about how the company was run and who really owned it and who dictated what happened with the car? And, uh, and will the truth ever come out? So I'm hoping the truth will come out. The problem with the truth coming out is people have to care enough to hear the other side of the story. And that's what we're told is that nobody will. So, so there's, um, there's a gentleman in the community, in the DeLorean community, Bob Brandis, and he's made um, a, a documentary called DeLorean, The Missing Pieces. So you know what? To answer your question, I, there is one out there that has it all right, and it's this one. Um, and what this was done was using the documents that have been unsealed and um, literally they're on my Facebook page. I I present a clip of this documentary, just a teaser clip. And 
it shows that the British government has in their documentation words that say, when this company fails, we need to make sure that it's John DeLorean's fault and that it does not come back to us in any way, shape, or form. Wow. It's a concerted effort to make it his fault. And if you go back and you do that Google search, like I said, the first articles to change the narrative came from the UK, which I don't know if that has anything to do with anything, but I found that interesting. So it's, there is, there is a whole, um, like litany of stuff that shows that my father, he was, so no money actually was ever provided to the company by the British government. Um, British people are saying, I want my money back, but that's hard when the government didn't give him the money that he was promised, which is why the company failed. <laughs> um, over the past year, I've learned some really, really, really crazy things about what was done, how the company was run. So for instance, I learned that my father didn't set out to build a car. He actually built his research and development company and he was working on a new engine with Smokey Eunuch and, and Bunky Knudsen. And he was focused on what he was doing. And then Allstate came along and gave him a lot of money to, to design this one car. And it happened the same way it happened. Literally, when you try and source parts for one car as a DeLorean, people are like, let us just build the car. It was kind of crazy. And and so th that's kind of what happened to him. And it all ended up getting away from him and turning into what it did. There's still some documents that are sealed for another. Like, why am I dead by the time the rest of them are unsealed? This this whole story comes back to he tried to do something. This is an interesting thing that I learned is that the 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 factory land was supposed to go to Lotus first and Lotus lost out to DMC, which upset Margaret Thatcher's brother who worked for Lotus, who Colin Chapman also worked for. And if you start to trace back all the pieces, it points back to Colin Chapman and Lotus seem to have something to do with what happened. It wasn't General Motors. It wasn't. But there's some really fun stuff I learned, like all of the VINs start at 500. And there's a whole bunch of rumors about why that is. Well, during this year, I've been working with two gentlemen who worked in Detroit and stamped the first 500 cars in Detroit. And I'm sitting here listening to them day after day talk about the first 500 cars. Then all of a sudden, I hear somebody talk about the VIN starting at 500. And I went, wait a minute. Does nobody know? Because they don't know. And I was like, you said you built 500. Yeah, we had an order for 500 cars. Well, the Vince started at 500. Yeah, that's because they printed blank cars in Ireland. No, that's because the first 500 cars were stamped in Detroit. And everybody's like, no, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. So I'm researching this AeroVet thing. Oddly enough, I find things when looking for other things. And I come across a WorthPoint post, which has documents from the company sold on eBay. So I can't read them, but I can see what's in them. And there's a document that says those first 500 cars are unsaleable. So we're going to have to do this, 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 and we're going to actually turn them into this. And then I went, well, I seem to have found the 500 cars. <laughs> and then I start going through these documents and I start finding there's, there's, a, there's a, a letter that says, you can't talk about that deal. Those cars don't exist. So I go to so I go to Malcolm Bricklin and I said, "What happened to the first 500 cars?" And he says, 
I have no idea. Oh. Like that in a, in a text message. And I'm like, hmm, okay. Then I get a message from him a few days later. You find those 500 cars yet? I said, no. And I'm not going to. It's not important. He said, yeah, good choice. Oh, so, wow. Oh, wow. I don't know if he knows that those 500 cars are there. His point was it was a waste of my time. But the funny and he doesn't know, but he was insinuating. Yeah, there's probably something going on where those 500 cars are somewhere. Now, it makes sense because they were unsaleable cars. Right. So there had to go through a different level of 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 um, they're non homologated. Right. You can't put them on the road. So um, they would have had to go through a refurbishment process. They may have been assigned new bins when they did that. So those cars may be out there as new badged cars, and we don't know. But that is something that for 40 years, nobody figured out. And when I tried to tell people about it, they literally said, oh, that's the greatest lie since the faked moon landing, like treated me like that. I'm like, fine. But I'm telling you, I know why the VINs start at 500, and it's not because they magically printed blank cars in Ireland, they made the first 500 in Detroit <laughs> and they disappeared. Well, so makes, there's some unknown history. It makes you kind of wonder, uh, you know, uh, Carol Shelby, uh, didn't he have those vehicles that he was no. bringing back across on a no, boat? No, and no, they... no. Well, that was, those were the uh, Daytona coupes yeah. that he didn't want to pay the taxes on to bring them back from France. But Shelby... Uh, he built his his first 260 Cobra, and it sold a few years ago at auction. And it's the original car, but it's if you chip the paint, there's 14 other shades of paint underneath it <laughs> because he was painting the car and giving it to one car magazine to test, and then bringing it back and painting it in a different car color and giving it to another car magazine to test. And it, they showed a few spots on the car where they chip, the paint had been chipped, and there's color after color after color underneath. He had one car. He just painted it 14 times and handed it around to everybody. So this, this stuff like that happens. But what I found more interesting is there are documents from your father's company that will not be released for another 40-some-odd years. Yeah. Why are those sealed? Why are those kept away from the public? What happened? That is some some very interesting stuff went down around your father's company. Yes. And, and I'm going to guess that they're sealed until I'm dead because then I can't do anything about what they say. Yeah. That would be my guess because they're pretty much timed to unseal when I'm dead. That's what happens. Well, Another 40 years, I doubt any of us are here talking about this. Statute of limitations. Yeah. Especially, I, I, especially I in human still, life. I, I plan on still being alive, and I actually plan on <laughs> asking for them to be unsealed prior to that. Because why? Well, I absolutely. have a right to know it ruined my entire life. Yeah. But that's something I have not the time for right now. I have to change the world for people first. Let's go. Then I'll get to that one. Let's go to a, <laughs> a, a more positive subject. What are some of the favorite keepsakes you have from your childhood? That would be um, the painting is my most prized possession of the famous blue DeLorean painting where it it's shown in my father's office. And the reason why it's my favorite is for two reasons. 
the picture of him laughing the loudest is in front of this painting. And it's one of my favorite pictures of my dad. It was in the paper. And then it hung downstairs in Bedminster, um, which was my happy place. That was just a magical place to grow up. And when I would come downstairs for breakfast, it was the first thing I saw in the morning. So when I moved out of the house, my dad gave it to me in my first apartment. It was what he gave me for my like christening of my first apartment. So that has, um, despite anything that the car ever meant to me ever, the painting itself has a very, very, very special place in my heart. Um, but I have my dad's watch that Pete gave him in 1969, I think, for his birthday. And it fits me the notch that it fit his wrist. It fits mine exactly the same place it fit my dad. Oh, cool. So that is my um, that's my other prize possession. Everything else is gone. Um, it was left to my brother and I, but there's a whole absconding estate that I learned about when I found out about the new car and all this started. So I have to figure out what happened to that now. Um, but uh, we, my brother and I didn't really get anything that my father had. It was all taken from us by somebody who may not have even been married to him. <laughs> so that's fun. Oh, wow. Man. Yeah, it's a wild story. It's it's a story that like this past year, um, I, I rattled off really quickly all the stuff I learned when it first happened to one of my friends and I said, All that stuff I just said, that's my life. That wasn't like some movie. That was like <laughs> I described it this way. I woke up in a lifetime movie produced by the Inquirer. <laughs> <laughs> It was it was kind of interesting. Um, it's a wild story that we're working and figuring out in progress. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's just it's it, but it's it really is. That's what this year has been. And people are like, and you're building a car. Yeah, because why not? <laughs> <laughs> I can worry about all this other stuff, but instead, we're going to do something cool. <laughs> what is the DeLorean Legacy Project and what can we expect from it? So the DeLorean Legacy Project is kind of where all this started. The idea was that rabbit hole, full circle, that you went down in the beginning of all this. There's a lot of information out there about my dad and who he was. Most of it is incorrect. Even the systems of record these days have been changed to reflect a different story than what happened. And all of it leaves out, like, some of his greatest accomplishments, his, his, his story, what he's done, you can lead a lot of the modern things on automobiles today lead back to patents he has that he started. The way that the modern automatic transmission functions at all started with him and the hydromatic at Packard. So the legacy project was designed to give people a place to go to find his story, not the one you think you know, the one that is not being told. And the reason why, and and the, the reason why is for what else is there, and that's because there's this entire group of people whose lives were changed and inspired by my father's car and his story. And if we allow history to get rewritten, no longer will people be inspired by the car. It will just be a thing in a movie, yeah. and that robs the ability of everybody to be inspired by this story. So we wanted to preserve that. 
Now, what goes along with that is um, the DeLorean Legacy Project is also, so the project is where we tell the story, but the, the foundation that goes around it um, is where we will have the scholarships that will help support our students. So part of what we'll offer in our, in our education program is I want to have um, a support scholarship that helps support their cost of living when they first start in their apprenticeships. Um, and this goes along with a scholarship that's already offered by TechForce. We hope to expand upon that and offer more to the students to give them the best opportunity to have success when they start their career and to also offer scholarships to people who want to go into higher education. So in ways that we can support communities and individuals, because the goal of DeLorean Next Generation is to change the world one person at a time through mentorship opportunity and support and whatever that means for that one individual. So we'll be able to do that through the donations that actually go through the legacy project um, to help fund those dreams. So that's the nonprofit that runs. And then BNG is where we'll have the cars built. Um, and they all kind of fit together in this beautiful little puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Now, last question. It's the one we ask everybody, and it's always the most fun. What is the dumbest thing you've ever done in a car? The dumbest thing I've ever done was on a motorcycle. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've done both in a car, but I did it in a motorcycle, which makes it worse. So um, I drove really fast. I, I topped my car out, my that Camaro I had, that Z28. I wanted to see how fast it would go. So I got it up to 157 miles an hour before I hit the rev limiter, and it was shaking. I was shaking. <laughs> it did not like to go that fast. And I actually slowed down. I was on I-5, middle of the night, going to San Francisco. I slowed down, and I got pulled over shortly after going 120-something. <laughs> and I was like, that's a good thing you didn't catch me a few minutes ago. Yeah. That's that's when you keep that to yourself. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I got pulled over at some point and they wrote me down so that I would keep my license because I was 16 years old and a girl. And it was <laughs> it was not what they were expecting to come out of the car. Um, but I did that same speed on on my CBR it, until I couldn't hold on. Like I couldn't tuck and anyway, I could go faster, but I couldn't tuck anymore. And um can can I, I ask which CBR? So my engagement ring is a CBR 1000 RR because I don't wear jewelry. And um, if he was going to spend two months salary on on me, it better go broom. And so I got uh, <laughs> what is it called? Um, so it's a 2004 CBR 1000 RR, and I had it up in the Santa Monica Mountains. And I realized in that moment because I was trying to tuck harder. I was trying to tuck harder so I could go faster. And then I went, if I hit a pebble, I'm dead. Yeah. So I decided that this was not a smart thing to do. Also, the person I was riding with had been airlifted out of the place we were riding three months prior. So oh, we, we, I was not riding with people who had my best interest in heart. <laughs> well, they probably thought the same of you. <laughs> so going about 157 miles an hour on two wheels in the middle of um, the Santa Monica Mountains was the stupidest thing I've ever done on a vehicle. And it was a lot of uh, don't feel bad. I've done something very similar. That's why I asked which CBR. We have been speaking with Kat DeLorean. Kat, take a moment. Please tell us where we can find you online and on social media. 
I am really hard to find. You just look up Cat DeLorean and I am there. So on Instagram, I'm at Cat DeLorean. We have, uh, we do have the Legacy Project. Um, we have the Legacy Project Instagram and we also have a Legacy Project YouTube. We have a DNG Motors, a DeLorean Next Generation Motors Instagram and YouTube where you'll be able to find some of our fun stuff going on there. On Facebook, I'm Cat DeLorean. It's a little harder for me to interact with you there. Facebook is a nightmare. Um, so I do most of my posts from Instagram to Facebook, but I do try and interact with you there. And then anybody who wants to tell me their story about their car can go ahead and send an email either through the Legacy Project to tell your story, or you can just send it to media at DNG Motors and get in touch with us. And my team will get you on the schedule and you can watch me cry when you tell me how much the car means to you. Oh. I have one more fun thing for you. Oh, please. Thing I ever actually experienced in a car was my father driving 140 miles an hour with the lights off in the NSX on the back road of River Road in New Jersey, which was a winding, twisting road next to a river. No lights, buck 40. It was insane. So that's <laughs> like I said, my dad listens to this show. <laughs> I'm not saying nothing. <laughs> There's no statute of limitations with the Hatfield. No, no. He still lives 10 minutes from me. Screw that. <laughs> He'd walk all the way here just to be able to smack you. Mm -hmm. Nope. Dad, I was always good. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Salt to the earth. Kat, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, it, it was fantastic. I couldn't thank, I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. I'll come back anytime you want me to hang out. Damn. Yeah. She's cool. She is cool, and she had tons of cool stuff to talk about. And we covered a lot of ground, and I was really looking forward to this, but I didn't realize how how great it was going to be. Yeah. So, and her her efforts to try and reintroduce science and engineering and tech and get kids involved with it and tie a car into it, it just. Well, you've seen the pictures, you know, uh, back back in the day when we were kids yeah, and, yeah, and our yeah, you know, yeah. uncles were kids. You know, they they pull a a motor out in their driveway, yeah, and rebuild it right there, yeah. And this was this was things that people did. Now I know, you know, today we've got so much tech in it that, and you know, and it's got uh, the mandatory proprietary uh, software programs. But I. I am really hoping that this type of program and the RPM Foundation and all of these get one younger people more interested in doing this in the engineering behind it well, and, and then figure out how to make it simpler rather than more But also think computer. about the legitimacy of where she came from. Oh, yeah. And her father, I mean, not just the, the DMC-12, but the GTO and the Firebird and just everything he had his hands in and... I, I, I was really looking forward to this, and I'm so glad we had her on. Kat, thank you a ton. Yeah. And I can't wait to have you back. That was just fantastic. And P.S., I want to find out more about that kid's book. Oh, yeah. Because after, uh, you know, we talked to her outside of the show, and uh, 
uh, finding out the comic books that she likes and uh, oh, her yeah. love affair with Jason. Okay. Here, here's what went on uh, <laughs> off, off the mic. Off mic, yeah. Uh, Mark, who writes <laughs> horror movies, found the world's biggest horror fan and oh, has yeah. all kinds of stuff. So there was the, some magic there. I won't kid you. There was some magic. Yeah, the two of you need to go to Comic-Con someplace. You oh, my God, yeah. Blast. Oh, that would be so fun. We'll go to Crypticon and just geek out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you, you fantastic. You <laughs> unbelievable nerd you you are not wrong no i am not thank you so much for spending time with driven radio we love what we do god this was so cool this was fun we love what we do and we wouldn't be able to do it without the support of our listeners you can find us online at drivenradioshow.com follow us on facebook twitter and instagram at driven radio show and on linkedin as driven radio show podcast you can also find us anywhere fine podcasts are heard. I am Brett Hatfield for Mark L. Groves. Yep. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Driven Radio.